Yeah, thank you, Father. We thank you for Matt. We thank you for his diligence in preparing this word for us, Lord. We ask that you would give him, yeah, your spirit. You give him your peace. You give him your words. And Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would take these words and they would mean something to each and every one of us, that we would leave this place with a deeper knowledge of who you are and a deeper relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good to, uh, I've been away for a few weeks, a couple of weekends away on holiday, and last weekend supporting my amazing wife and daughter as they took part in the sprint triathlon in Leeds and raised a thousand pounds to go towards the work of Food Bank, which is amazing. So, uh, <clears throat> and uh, especially enjoyed the fact that Josie did an extra lap of Leeds City Centre and ran two and a half K more than she should have done. But she always goes too far, and uh, always doing the extra mile, just as Jesus said. Okay, so um, hopefully you've been either catching up, or if you're a visitor, uh, you will uh, not know that we are doing a series on Old Testament heroes. I wonder who you would choose. I don't know if you've actually stopped and thought, who would I choose if I was doing my Old Testament hero? And, uh, you know, generally when we hear the word heroes... We kind of think of brave people doing kind of brave things. But when I came to, to like think about the Old Testament, I was really asking, who in the Old Testament has had the biggest impact on me and my life? And uh, it's not that I'm not into action, yeah, because I totally am, you know, born action man, as you can tell. And um, no, that's Lyndon, actually. Um, but but I, I'm someone who actually is probably more inspired by ideas, concepts, and at times, words. And so when it came to thinking about who was my hero, it is someone who is known for what they say more than for what they do. And, uh, and so it is with joy that I'm going to look into the life of my Old Testament hero, Isaiah, today, this morning. You know, as I was looking through this, as I was reading through um, the book of Isaiah, I'm thinking, I've got, you've got enough for like a 10-week series here. You truly have. And I've got to try and distill it into one 30-minute talk. So I want to give you a little bit of context, and I want to just take three, I think, what are the three big life lessons that I have taken from the prophet Isaiah um, into my walk with Jesus. So a little bit of context. Um, so firstly, first bit of context, it's appropriate that we are talking about Isaiah on Father's Day because he was the daddy of all prophets, okay? And uh, in some kind of convoluted way, if you want this to be a Father's Day talk, yeah, um, maybe you can learn a thing or two from the daddy of all prophets as you go on being a father. It's a really bad link, but I thought, you know, I thought some kind of link into Father's Day was, thank you, thank you, um, when I talk about that, when I say he's the daddy of all prophets, obviously anyone under the age of 30 knows what I'm talking about. For the rest of us, um, really kind of it is that he was, he kind of like was and is the main prophet. Yes, that spoke into um, the, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, but also uh, when it comes to uh, us as Christians, as we look back on the prophets, without doubt, he is and was the most influential prophet that is there well there in the bible and therefore was at that particular time 
just in terms of timing, when this happened, um, it kind of happened around 740 to 683 BC. That is kind of like the rough time that kind of Isaiah was alive. Isn't it amazing that we actually know that as a historical fact? So, you know, this, so, but also in relation to Jesus, so you can kind of work that out, that's kind of around 700-ish years before Jesus. In terms of, this is, this is something that uh, kind of is, is quite interesting. In terms of um, who wrote the book of Isaiah, well, you would think it would be obvious, yeah, that Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. But actually, uh, kind of like scholars are slightly split on whether Isaiah himself wrote the whole book of Isaiah. And uh, some people uh, claim that the first 39 chapters were written by him. And that potentially, the rest of it was actually added up to 200 years later. Now, you will find different people arguing over what, which is which. The argument for it being written later were basically three things. Firstly, that there was a bunch of history that he refers to that actually happened post-Isaiah's life. Then the guy was a prophet, so, you know. <laughs> um, secondly, it's really interesting that Isaiah, is, he refers to himself by name, all the way through up until a certain point, and then his name is not mentioned for the rest of it. And thirdly, the kind of like the second chunk of Isaiah is written in a very different literary style. Okay? And, uh, and so I find this stuff interesting. Okay? Don't know if you do. And uh, I also find it interesting to think that when I was kind of like quite a young Christian, uh, I would have had a little bit of a knee jerk reaction to that. Even someone standing up on the stage and saying, no, 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 it must have be all been written by Isaiah. But it's just like, well, I would say now as a slightly more mature Christian, I'm a little bit like, well, what's the big idea? I believe it's inspired by God. I believe it speaks to me. I can believe it can speak into this situation. Whether it was all written by Isaiah or whether he wrote a bunch and then a bunch was added 200 years later, I'm going to do my best to draw everything I can to inspire me in my walk with Jesus today. <clears throat> So, Isaiah, a little, little bit more. So, uh, next point, uh, if I could have that, have that up. Bing! There we go. So, Isaiah was extremely well-educated and quite uh, affluent, okay? So, he was a wealthy guy. Um, they know he was well-educated, again, because of the way it was written. It was a very, uh, very eloquent, unique style in his Hebrew, which indicated the education that he had. And... Um, and yeah, and just kind of his place in society was such. Isaiah was also called to what you might call high visibility ministry. Uh, so he wasn't like a John the Baptist type prophet who basically wandered around the desert like kind of uh, some kind of, yeah, some guy who'd like lost his way but actually was speaking the word of God. No, Isaiah was in a place where he was speaking to kings. He was speaking to aristocracy. That was the call on his life. It was a high visibility ministry. Next, who is it written to? Okay, just a bit of context for you so you can kind of get an understanding of it. It was written to the people of Judah. Okay, so, uh, and I'm very aware, man, there's theologians in this place that know an awful lot more than I do. But the people of Judah and the people of Israel, which kind of really kind of started to break up back in the time of Jacob, and they had a bit, a bit of a kind of like the family tensions really kind of go back to that moment. Um, kind of two sets of kind of God's people from the Old Testament as we understand it. 
interestingly reunited under the rule of King David, but they were now separated. The kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Isaiah was sent to speak to the kingdom of Judah. We often hear from other prophets such as Elijah, Elisha, Amos. They spoke to the people of Israel. Okay, so two different groups of people. And, uh, and really, uh, yeah, interestingly, Isaiah in chapter 11 prophesies that those two groups of God's people would reunite. They would put their fighting and their civil wars behind them. And one final thing, which I really, really liked. I really, I found this really kind of uh, interesting. And uh, now you all know how many books there are in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, don't you? Yeah, if you don't know, how can you possibly be a Christian if you don't know stats like that? You know, those stats, that those are the things that are going to kind of make it on Judgment Day. Okay, so we're going to learn that this morning. And uh, so in the Old Testament, um, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And I always remember someone explaining a great way to remember it is 3 times 9, 39, equals 27. And still to this day... Got a nod there from the math teacher in the room. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, that is right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 just checking. Um, and, uh, and again, as, as, as I read more deeply around Isaiah, I found it really intriguing that actually, if you look at the general flow and the general kind of content of Isaiah, it almost kind of matches the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Okay. So like the first 39 verses are quite focused on God's kind of judgment, on God speaking kind of really kind of strong, harsh kind of like things over his people. They were, they were deserved, so it wasn't being unfair. And then kind of like the next part, the next, the kind of the final 27 verses from 40 through to kind of 66, they were, they were kind of very much focused on God's love on God's mercy and his kind of goodness in his heart of love and grace and favor. And when I heard that, I was just like, wow, that is so interesting. I mean, obviously, when they kind of like split the chapters up, who knows if they really knew what they were doing or if God himself was just popping a little seed in there to show us. So, nearly 2,800 years on from Isaiah, let's have a look and see what we might be able to learn from him. And I've literally just pulled three lessons out from his life. The three things that speak to me most and hopefully will speak to you as you seek to live your life. The first one, very, very famous words of Isaiah. He's got a lot of famous words, hasn't he? Because he's the daddy of all prophets. Um, But the very first one, this term, here I am, send me. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 6. It says this, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, that was the main king that he'd been prophesying to up until that point. And, uh, and so it wasn't that he hadn't prophesied up until this point. This was in, in, within this context of his ministry. But in that year, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. So he was having a vision. Okay, he was having a vision. And it says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And it goes on to kind of like paint a little bit more of the, 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 the vision of what I saw. Um, kind of seraphimistic swings, two wings that covered their face and all things. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So really similar to the kind of visions that John had to write the book of Revelation. 
And his response to this. So basically, he had an encounter with God. Yeah? We all have different encounters with God. Some of them may be uh, kind of like complete and utter life-changing ones. Others could be just a moment like in worship this morning where God's just kind of molding and shaping and tweaking our thinking and our hearts. But there are other times, aren't there? Maybe you can remember a time when you have had an encounter with God that was part of him calling you to be someone that you weren't already. And his response, Isaiah's response to this, was, Woe to me. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so his first response was to humble himself before God. His first response was to say, God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And compared to the amazingness of our God, we all fall so far short, don't we? But God had other plans. And so as part of the vision, one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And uh, we don't want anyone acting this out when they're having their barbecues at Burnsall next week, okay? Don't try this at home, kids. With it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. I love the different ways that God just takes guilt away from people. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. And it goes on to say what he told them to go and send the people. And I think this kind of like, first of all, this can just speak to all of us, every single one of us. God wants us to be in a place where we are consistently encountering him, where we're consistently seeing him for who he is, knowing him for who he is. That is why we worship together, because it's one of the best ways. But sometimes it can be in a Bible study, it can be in a light group or whatever it is, but he wants us to be encountering him be it in groups, be it in our own, like Isaiah was. Encounter him, humble ourselves, and then basically listen to what he has to say to us. And what he had to say to Isaiah is exactly what he says to us, which is this. Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us. Really interesting, a little glimpse into the Trinity. Who will go for us? And God is looking for a people who say, Here am I. Here am I. Here I am. Send me. For Isaiah, this meant speaking up. This meant being prepared to, 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 to stand up, to say at times difficult stuff. It wasn't simply, it wasn't just standing up telling bedtime stories that everyone was thinking, oh, this is nice and lovely. This was, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say something that's going to be a slap around the face for my culture. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say something that is going to grate against the people that I share it with. For us, it means... Living out and proud. 
with a strong sense of our Christian identity. Being prepared to speak up for God in any and every situation. That doesn't mean that we need to be a people who go around every single situation we're going to turn it into. Well, God says. But it does mean that there to be moments where we're to be a different voice. Where our life is to speak up as well as our, our, our very selves to speak up and, and to proclaim Jesus' way. The way of Jesus, the way of sacrificial love, the way of peacemaking, the way of righteousness in our dealings and our relationships. And what's really interesting, again, just kind of like spotting this. God said, who should, who, who should we send or who will go for us? Isaiah said, I will. And God sends him nowhere. God sends him nowhere. He didn't actually get sent anywhere. He got sent to the very, very people that he was in the midst of at that very time. Which would be interesting. Again, a number of people that have maybe kind of uh, um, stood in a festival or a soul survivor or whatever. And the Isaiah thing of like, who shall we send? Who shall go? It's like, who's going to go? Who's going to go? And all the hands go up because it sounds really, really exciting. It's not quite as exciting going to the people that you're already doing life with, is it? But as we think, even just about next week and the, the, the great kind of opportunity and challenge brought by Lyndon and Josie and, the, uh, and that, it's like, well, actually, God is sending you. If you will say, here I am, send me, the first place he's likely to send you is exactly where you are, i.e. nowhere. But he is deliberately sending you. He's sending you to the people that he has placed you around. There will be times when there will be people called to actually go somewhere different. We need to, to learn from the prophet Isaiah to be a people who turn up and speak up. That's speaking up for our faith. That's speaking up against injustice, which we'll come on to soon. But take the inspiration from him and say, God, here am I. Here am I. Send me. And he probably won't send you very far. But if we go with a sent mentality into every single week, then we'll be doing the stuff that Isaiah himself modeled. Lesson two from Isaiah. Are there any rich people in the room? Thanks, Dave. In your affluence, by the way, you're not all rich. There are some people, (laughs) um, I know we could say we're all rich because we've got Jesus and that, but, you know, talking materially, you know, and there are some people in the room who have more than others. Yes, if we think from a world perspective, most of us are extremely affluent. But Isaiah himself was affluent. He was a wealthy guy. He was a well-educated guy. But we learn from him. In your affluence, prioritize the poor. He was speaking to kings. He was speaking to the rich and powerful. And he was speaking to to God's people. In chapter 3... Isaiah rails against, effectively, the church leadership of the time. The leadership, the leaders who were over the people of God, who were setting the temperature, who were setting the culture in which the people of Judah were living. And he says this. This is what prophets do. They stand up and they be counted. He says, the Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It's you who've ruined my vineyard. By the way, he's not concerned about his wine. He's talking about his people. 
It's you who've ruined my vineyard. And this, oh, the plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? He would have said it like this, okay? It wouldn't. What do you mean? <laughs> Probably not. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? He stood up in chapter 10, speaking to the lawmakers, to the government. Woe to those who make unjust laws. To those who issue oppressive decrees, who deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people. Isaiah was a prophetic voice into the people of God at that time. A people who had wandered from God. And we see one of the main ways they had wandered from him was by the fact that they were oppressing the poor. That in the, in the way they lived, in the way that the plunder from the poor is in your houses. Crushing my people, grinding the faces of the poor. This was a key part of who Isaiah was. This was a key part of Isaiah's message. And it speaks today. It speaks today as a prophetic voice into the church in this nation into the church across the world. And as I was thinking about it, you know our church is a prophetic statement as well. We are. When we started this church 10 years ago, we decreed, we decided we are going to be a church. And by the way, we probably do get it wrong. And there are probably some ways in which the plunder of the poor is in our houses and that we maybe support oppressive decrees at times and all of that. But we made a decision that as a church, we were going to prioritize. Prioritize good news to the poor. There aren't lots and lots of churches in the UK who when they roll their budgets out are giving us bigger chunks to make sure that they're serving their community Seeing the oppressed set free. You know, there is more that we do as a church. Yes, it is fantastic. The individual help that we do from life to life to life to life. And we do that in the number of people that we help. But also as a community. We become a prophetic statement. There are others that are more prophetic statements. There are others that, that, that model this better. But for the church to wake up and hear the cry of Isaiah, they need to be able to look around the country and to see some churches who are living out this very cry. And I'm proud, no longer as a leader, but as one of the founders, to say that, yes, we fall really far short and we've still got some way to go. But we are a cry. I thank God that I don't believe the Lord will enter into judgment against our elders and our leaders. No. If anything, we fulfill Isaiah 25 verse 4. Where it says, you have been a refuge for the poor. A refuge for the needy in their distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. This was really kind of Isaiah prophesying of what it would be. 
And again from Isaiah 40 as it starts to turn into kind of like God's grace and favor. It says, the poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Effectively, what he was saying there is, you lot, you're supposed to be my people and you have forsaken them. But I, I will not forsake them. There are two, and then kind of like two of the most kind of powerful, powerful verses as God calls us to care for the poor chapters, I mean. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, which even to this day, has to speak into our lives. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. Simple as that. Declare to my people their rebellion. You see, I'm very passionate about this. It's because this is my, this, you know, these really, this is the core of what, who God has called me to be. Declare to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They, say, they seem eager to know my ways. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. So these people, they'd forsaken God's commands. They asked me for just decisions, seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. It ends in quarreling and strife. Again, I thank God that we're not a church that's been known for quarreling and strife. In striking each other with wicked fists, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this it? Is this, is this all I've chosen? Just a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head? Like, in other words, tokenism. That's really what he was having to go at. Tokenism. Is that it? Is that what you call it? Acceptable? Is it? No. No, no. This is what I've chosen. You loose the chains of injustice. You untie the cords of the yoke like church. You set the oppressed free and you break every yoke. You share your food with the hungry. You provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, you clothe them. And don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. The promises that go with it are many, many, many. Your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you. Preach many a time, I don't believe God's a slot machine God. You put the right actions in, you get the right answers out. But this says, don't expect it. If you're not giving a stuff about the injustice in your society, don't expect to be crying out to God. Because he loves every single person in this city, every single person in our community. And he calls us to do something about it. Thirdly. Never stop going on about Jesus. Isaiah was remarkable amongst the prophets in his ability to talk about Jesus before he even had a clue who Jesus was. And the challenge there is if he can talk about Jesus when he didn't even know who Jesus was, 
surely, as people who do know who Jesus is, whose lives have been changed and transformed by the transforming power of Jesus, we also should never stop going on about him. In chapter 7, there's a really interesting thing. Isaiah was speaking into his time, okay? So pretty much all the time when he was prophesying, he was prophesying into what was happening there and then. It was like he got the newspapers out and was like, this is what God wants to say, although he wasn't. He was speaking it often to kings. So Judah were being oppressed. They're being overrun. The Israelites had joined forces. The, the, the kingdom of Israel had joined forces. And they were, they were out to get them. So Isaiah had been speaking about the fact that this was going to come, but actually it was going to be judgment upon Judah. But then also he was prophesying that God would come back and rescue them. So in other words, it's going to be an absolute nightmare, but don't worry, I will come back and I will help you. And so he'd been saying all of this stuff. And then right into the middle of it, he says a few words. A few words that I bet even when he uttered them, he probably didn't have any idea that what he was saying. That's just, I'm just surmising. But if you, if you go to chapter 7, it says this. It says, it says, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, that's Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So in other words, you're about to get attacked. Yeah? It's about, you're about to be, be, be overrun. And God basically says to Isaiah, go out and tell King Ahaz not to worry. Yeah? That's kind of like summarizing quite a few verses. Go out, tell him not to worry. Do not worry about this. And then he says in verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. When he says the Lord spoke, it's probably through the prophet Isaiah. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. We see a lot of people getting signs in the Old Testament, don't we? Ask the Lord your God for a sign. It says, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. In other words, a sign in the, a sign in the skies or, or whatever. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. So even though the prophet had come and said, ask for a sign, that it's going to be all okay. Ahaz said, no, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test, which is interesting. Then Isaiah said, <sighs> probably a bit of a sigh. Here now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God as also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ask for a sign. I'm not asking for a sign. All right, then. I'm going to give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And will call him Emmanuel. So now when you hear this every Christmas, you can understand how it was spoken and what context it was spoken into. This wasn't just Isaiah still on thing, right? Okay, oh, I'm going to do a Christmas prophecy now. Here it comes. Yeah? He was speaking into his time. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which we know means God with, with us. He will be eating curds and honey. The curds and honey is a reference to basically kind of like being in a, on the run. Okay, because they didn't have time to grow the stuff they needed to grow. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For the boy, for before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Okay, 
So that's about Jesus. And it's almost like a kind of a, a mashup of a prophecy into the time there and then, along with Isaiah not even probably realizing he was speaking messianic prophetic truth is what he was doing. This was all about King Ahaz. He was speaking into his time, and yet in the midst of it, he says these words that would then go on to be fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years later. We see many amazing more prophecies that we see fulfilled in Jesus. But even at the time, they would have taken it to mean something here and now. And many of the time, they probably took the here and now and interpreted it in light of that. But we see that ultimately, Jesus was the ultimate. Isaiah 9, once again, Christmas prophecy, here we go. Isaiah 9, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, don't worry. There is a, per, there is a, a, a redeemer coming. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, we hear these words and we think that can only be talking about Jesus. But it wasn't unusual, even in Jesus' time, for these words to be used about the rulers of the time. But then we see this thing, which really speaks of the greatness of his government. Or the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And again, an amazing, I love this description of Jesus, even before Jesus was on the scene. From Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. And faithfulness, the sash around his waist. And then the brilliant words. I told you I was going to struggle to fit it into 30 minutes. The brilliant words that Isaiah speaks. That were the very beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth. I see Isaiah acting like a bridge. Between the old and the new. I really do. I think, I, I think more than any of the other Old Testament writers, he was inspired by God to be a bridge between the old and the new. My personal understanding is that the old, what we read about in the Old Testament, it was a foreshadow of what was to come. I believe that the whole of Scripture is a progression from the old understanding of God. Which means that we don't, that's why we don't take it and we don't completely apply it to how we understand God today. But it speaks to us of God. It was an understanding of God in a very tribalistic, violent world. And God taking his people and progressing them and moving them towards a new type of people. Who maybe struggled to throw off some of that old stuff. Which is why there's some pretty gruesome stuff out back there. But Isaiah was the bridge. Leading us. And pointing to a different way.
God's better way that we see birthed in the early church through Jesus. And the overarching theme of love, of compassion, and Isaiah is the bridge. We read Jesus in Isaiah. And for me, the most helpful way to read the Old Testament is to see where do I see Jesus. And for me, that's where the Old Testament part of the Word of God really comes alive. Reading and looking through the lens of Jesus. There's a posh term, it's Christocentric. That is how these words come alive and speak to me. And so, like I say, there's a 10-week series in the book of Isaiah. There is so much. It is so rich. Here I am. Send me. He sent you to exactly where you are. That doesn't mean that some of you, for some of you this morning, this might have been a go somewhere else moment. But for most of you, he sent you to where you are. Speak up on God's behalf. Declare a new way. In your affluence, prioritize the poor. And finally, keep it all about Jesus. If you take those three and you live your life by those three, I think you'll be doing a pretty good job. And I also think you couldn't really get a better summary of everything that we believe the Light Church should have been in these first 10 years and the next 10 years to come. Thank you. It's great, Matt. Thank you.